Welcome to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. My name is Dr. Andrew Trasetta from Somerset uh, ICS, and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Peter Bagshaw, GP and Somerset Clinical Lead for Mental Health and Dementia. And we're really pleased to welcome today another friend and colleague, another GP from Somerset, Dr. Campbell Murdoch. Campbell, tell us about yourself, please. Hi there, real honour to be with you. So I'm, um, I'm a GP in Somerset. Uh, I've worked in Somerset since 2009 um, and I split my time between GP working and also dealing with uh, helping people to improve their health. Lovely and that's great to have you with us because the title that we've got for today is Reversing Prediabetes. That's right so so my interests lie in a broad range of helping people improve their health but prediabetes is one of them and for me, uh, I've not yet met, met a person that wants to be sick, um, and yet many people have got prediabetes. So how do we reverse that? And Campbell, can you just give our listeners a, a bit of a, a thumbnail sketch of the differences between type 1 diabetes, type 2 diabetes, what prediabetes is? Because to a lot of people, it's just homogeneous diabetes, and that's not the case, is it? That's right. So let's first think about diabetes. So typically we split diabetes into type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes. Type 1 diabetes is a condition, both of them are conditions of high blood sugar. Type 1 diabetes is a condition when the body has, its kind of blood glucose control system is not working because the body's not releasing or creating releasing a hormone called insulin, which lowers blood sugar. In type 2 diabetes, the major issue is the body will be releasing this hormone called insulin, but the body doesn't respond to it, and therefore the blood glucose remains high. Pre-diabetes is the stage before type 2 diabetes. So the body's starting to lose its ability to control blood sugar, but there's still an element of control still there. And I remember being taught at medical school that this was just something that happened with ageing. But we're now seeing a huge explosion, aren't we, in type 2 diabetes and pre-diabetes. And I, I think there's new thinking about why this is becoming so common. Do you want to, to tell us about that? That's right. So I sometimes look at this and say, what, what conditions have we now got that were rare or non-existent 100 years ago? And type 2 diabetes is definitely falling into that bucket. Um, and the numbers of people with type 2 diabetes has hugely accelerated over the last 20, 30 years. I think somewhere around about, uh, I think it was 5% of people, one in 20 had it in 2000. 11, I think it's coming up for 11% of adults in 2011, and, and, and it's increasing from there. Now, like you, I was taught that type 2 diabetes just happens um, and as, as we age, and we can do some things to try and slow it down, but it's in, in, and a bit of an inevitability for many people. We now know that is absolutely not true. Um, we do have a, our own kind of, I guess, genetic predisposition to it, but equally lifestyle seems to play an enormous component in that. So my kind of thoughts now is type 2 diabetes is largely preventable, but even more excitingly for people that have type 2 diabetes or prediabetes, we can actually improve stroke, reverse it uh, for many people. So that sounds very exciting. So here we are with an incidence at the moment, sorry, prevalence, not incidence, of 11% or something like that in 2022 of diabetes in the adult population. And I know in Mexico some years ago, uh, it was much higher, but they, they reduced sugar load and, and other things and made a difference. So perhaps you're giving us some hints that it may be 
possible to drop it down from 11%. And for you and I, or for anyone who's at risk of prediabetes, to do things to reverse it and to reverse diabetes. That's right. So I think we can look at a population level, which is always interesting. And what can we do for the population in Somerset, in England, the UK, and around the world? What, what can we change in our environment? But actually, as a, as a GP, I guess my, my day is mainly spent dealing with people on a one-to-one -one level. And I quite like the idea of, well, we can let the world change around us that might help us, but actually, what can I do for myself to change the situation? And what, with that, we can action that today. So I'm really interested in, in helping people understand what pre-diabetes, type 2 diabetes are, because I think if they understand it, then you can improve it. If you don't understand it, it's difficult to tackle. And then the what to do to, to start reversing the condition, start improving the condition, um, which they can go away and implement in a way that works for them in the almost starting from when they leave the consulting room. And can you just outline to people listening why diabetes is a problem, what the complications of diabetes are? Because people may not be aware of all the, the, the diff different things that can happen if you have diabetes. So if you have uh, type 2 diabetes and it, it is left unchecked, then the consequences are really driven through two routes. One is high blood sugars will cause damage to the body. And the other is the body really fighting hard to keep blood sugar normal is a bit like a civil war going on inside the body. And that will cause its own, own issues as well. And the, the physical problems you people may experience is damage to eyesight and, 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 and loss of vision. They may experience kidney problems. They may experience uh, things like uh, nerve damage to legs and uh, ulcers developing and a wide range of other cardiovascular problems, things as heart attacks and strokes. And also perhaps more relevant to the here and now, they will just feel rubbish. If the body's fighting itself every single day and it feels like it's at war with itself, that's going to mean fatigue. It's going to mean, um, for many people, real difficulty in losing any excess belly fat because the body's stuck in a fat storage mode. It's going to be energy highs and lows. And I think for many people feeling out of control of their health and a bit fed up. And you've mentioned that uh, it can be prevented or even in some cases reversed, which is really exciting. Now, part of that is obviously about drug therapy, but there's also lifestyle changes that can make a huge difference, aren't there? Can you tell us a bit about those? Yeah, and I think this is really the key area to focus on because ever since I learned about type 2 diabetes at medical school, I was taught it's a chronic progressive disease. The focus was on weight and go away, lose weight. We know it's tough and we know type 2 diabetes is progressive and therefore I'll see you next year and give you some more drugs. That was a fairly hopeless way of thinking about things, which one, didn't really work and two, doesn't really inspire people. So when you change the lens and actually look at what's actually happening with type 2 diabetes, it provides some really neat other solutions and relatively easy explanations as to what to do. So I think we need to start with how the body works and certainly around blood sugar. So average adult has about five litres or eight pints of blood in their body and a normal amount of sugar in the blood is a very small amount. The sugar in the blood is called glucose. So when we're talking about blood sugar, we're talking about blood glucose and the body has to control that very tightly. The amount of glucose, the amount of sugar that you should have in your blood, the healthy amount of sugar to have in your blood is one teaspoon or five grams, an incredibly small amount in all of your eight pints of blood. 
Um, interestingly, in the days when we used to diagnose diabetes using a fasting blood sugar, the, the diabetes would be diagnosed if there were seven grams, so just half a teaspoon more than would be, you would diagnose diabetes, which is obviously a tiny increase. And I just highlight that because it just shows how tightly blood sugar needs to be controlled. So then you think, well, where does this sugar in the blood come from? Well, it comes from two places. Firstly, and extremely importantly, and often forgotten, the body makes glucose. So the liver, which sits at the top right of our tummy, makes glucose. We can actually survive an entire lifetime without ever eating any sugar, any glucose. The liver will make all we need, which is very fortunate, otherwise we'd be dropping dead within one day of not eating if the liver was not able to do that. So the starting point is the liver can make glucose. And interestingly, in diabetes, one of the issues is the liver is making too much glucose. The other place sugar in the blood can come from or glucose in the blood can come from is obviously our food. And everyone can probably think, well, eating sugar will put sugar into your blood, which is correct. The other place which the sugar in the blood comes from is from what we call carbohydrate. And when we're talking about carbohydrate, we're normally thinking about something called starch. And starch is very simply lots of glucose, lots of sugar molecules holding hands into long chains. And starch comes from plants that make sugar, join the sugar molecules together and store it for, for, for a growth of a new plant or for a rainy day when there's no other fuel around. So when we eat these foods and starchy foods, we think of starch carbohydrates, bread, pasta, rice, potatoes, and vast majority of um, many of the um, packaged foods we eat have a large component of them that's made from starch. So when you eat these foods, these chains of sugar holding hands go into your mouth and then your body brings the scissors out, starting in your mouth and then further on your gut and clips all these links, gets, gets the sugar stops holding hands, turns back into sugar, gets absorbed into your, into your blood and sends your blood sugar up. So looking, acknowledging that, you think, well, my, if my blood sugar is high, what should I eat or what should I not eat if I'm going to try and bring my blood sugar down? And That's interesting. Sorry, can I just interject? Because you know, I'm a, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in the 60s now, and the, the standard advice for diabetics um, 10, 20, 30 years ago was eat plenty of carbohydrate, type 2 diabetics. You know, take take your tablets, but have 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 a balanced balanced meal, whatever a balanced meal is, plenty of carbohydrate and and um you know the pasta, rice, and uh, and bread and things. Is that completely wrong? Yeah, so it's really, when you look back through history. Um, I've got a textbook, actually, a, a, a printed copy of a textbook from 1892, the, the uh, Medical and Surgical Manual of Nursing, written by uh, Dr. Lawrence in London. And there's a chapter on diabetes in that. Obviously, in those days, they hadn't differentiated between type 1 and type 2. Probably the vast majority of people would have been type 1. But they knew, and the management of diabetes in 1892, a condition of high blood sugar, was to reduce the incoming sugar in food, so sugar and also the starchy carbohydrates that digest the sugar. Then around about the 50s and 60s, really, the, the narrative started to significantly change, and we started to ignore the fact that starchy carbohydrates digested to sugar and really started focusing on blood sugar goes high when people are overweight. And then this, what seems logical, but when you analyse it, it's not logical, you're overweight because you eat too many calories. Fat's got more calories than carbohydrate. Therefore, stop eating fat and base your meal on carbohydrate. That really started being promoted in the 80s and 90s. And we saw this just acceleration of um, 
type 2 diabetes developing. And certainly up until about 12 years ago, the common advice was still low fat, high carbohydrate diet is what you need to eat with type 2 diabetes. And what did we see? We saw the whole problem getting worse. So without wishing to say exactly what any individual should eat, I would say if your blood sugar is high, eating food that raises your blood sugar is probably not going to help. So it's putting more fuel on the fire. Uh, and we, you skipped very nicely from the, the 1890s to the 1950s. And of course, in between, we had the life-saving um, invention of or discovery of insulin, which helps all our type 1 diabetics dramatically. And perhaps because of that, the great successes with that, um, the ketogenic diets and other things got put aside and it became sort of rather easier to, to, to be a bit relaxed about type 2 diabetes. So we've, we've ended up with 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 insulin and of course the problem with the wrong dose of insulin is that you go hypo so you have to have some sugar or glucose or glucagon to actually restore it and so perhaps there's been a sort of an intellectual reaction of of oh it's okay to have some carbohydrate because the insulin as long as there is some will mop it up that's right so i guess just going back to that basic physiology if your blood glucose goes up so it goes above one teaspoon that's uh, sensed in 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 the uh, in the body and the pancreas at the top sort of middle left of the tummy releases insulin that then triggers the body to lower lower the glucose and I kind of picture this as the insulin's going off around the body and the blood knocking on the doors of cells saying hey cells open your door please we've got too much sugar in the blood let some into you uh, and if the cells are happy to do so they'll open the doors and the sugar rushes out of the blood and goes into cells blood sugar's back to normal and the body's happy. In type 1 diabetes, go back to type 1 diabetes, if your body's not making any insulin, then you're not, not, you're not getting the knock on the door of cells, and therefore the blood sugar would remain high. So the amazing discovery of insulin back in the early 1920s and ability to extract it and, and was life-changing for people with type 1 diabetes and life-saving, um, extremely important and, 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 and miraculous Unfortunately, over the following decades, and as type 2 diabetes started to become more common, the paradigm was the conditions a one of insufficient insulin. And because we weren't measuring insulin, we, we didn't really think about it. And unfortunately, that led us on to thinking, well, you're, you may have type 2 diabetes, your sugar's gone high, therefore let's just give you some insulin and lower it, which led us on a bit of a wrong path because actually people with type 2 diabetes do not have type 1. They, they, they are, their body is making insulin. Um, so there was this kind of confused, confused uh, uh, confusion between what type 1 diabetes, what type 2 diabetes, and actually we just started treating them both in exactly the same way when actually they're extremely different conditions, which I don't think did anyone with type 2 diabetes any real favours. And even today still, you see people with type 2 diabetes on an enormous amount of insulin, absolutely enormous amount of insulin, um, 100, 200 units a day. And the analogy I use this, which might be a game to help people understand what type 2 diabetes is, going back to the knocking on the door of cells, in type 2 diabetes, the blood sugar goes up. So you eat your, your sandwich or you eat your bowl of cornflakes or you have your glass of orange juice that's going to surge your blood sugar up. The body responds to that as it should do by pumping out some insulin. The insulin's off traveling around the blood, knocking on the door of cells. The cells are already overstuffed. 
they do not want to take any more sugar into them. So if what, what would you expect these cells to do? Well, you'd expect them not to want to open their door. Now, the result of that, if they do not open their door, is the sugar in the blood stays high, which could be immediately damaging or potentially lethal to the body. So what does the body do? Well, it releases more insulin. So now instead of a polite tap on the door and asking these cells to politely open the door and the cells welcoming the sugar, now, because these cells don't want the sugar inside them, the insulin, the amount of insulin released is like a, the world's largest battering ram. And these doors are getting hammered on and the cells are being forced to take the sugar out of the blood. Now, they don't want it. They're already overstuffed. They're already full. They're, they're struggling as it is themselves. And now here, have some more sugar. So somebody with type 2 diabetes gets high blood sugar and the insulin levels are higher than in a healthy person. Then, if you take the, this analogy of, well, the problem is just high blood sugar, let's give them some more insulin, that's like doubling or tripling the battering ram to force this sugar out of the blood into these cells that don't want it, which um, ends up causing more harm than good. Some of the side effects, instant side effects that anyone who injects insulin will know is insulin is really just a fuel storage hormone, and it also uh, instructs the body to create and store fat. So um, people with these high insulin levels are effectively locked in fat storage mode, which is why um, whether you have pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes and you eat anything that raises your blood sugar, which then raises your insulin, which then locks you in fat storage mode, one of the reasons is one of the, one of the reasons is why you're always hungry because you're struggling to access your fat stores, um, which explains, I think, why many people go on these, they, they have these challenges through the day while they have no energy and energy highs and lows, um, um, which is, yeah, I think an interesting thing to reflect on and um, why we shouldn't be treating type 2 diabetes like we treat type 1 diabetes. So you've described really clearly the wrong path that we've been going down and, and why it's a bad thing, not just for diabetes, but other, other bits of the body as well. But there are there is now a new approach and there are lots of doctors trying this new approach. I'm particularly, uh, I, I know David Unwin, who I'm sure you, you know as well, you probably shared a platform with him on a few times. He's produced charts showing what you were saying about how carbohydrates are just sugar locked in together. And he's also got some very impressive results with reversing his own patients with type 2 diabetes, hasn't he? Do you want to say a bit about that? Yeah, so David Unwin is a GP in the north of England. Um, he has a uh, rate of 50% of his people with type 2 diabetes will place their diabetes into what we call remission. So that's a, a blood sugar level below the level that you diagnose diabetes. So if, if you met this measure called HbA1c below 48. Uh, he's of his practice, I think he's got now 110 or 120 people that are in remission, plus many more people, even if you don't get your blood sugar under this kind of magic threshold of remission, will have significantly improved it. And going back to your point about how the world's changed, so, so the world always changes. At one point, we thought the world was flat, and then we discovered it was round and everything worked better. This is what's happening with type 2 diabetes. So sometimes say we're going back to the future. So we're going back to what we knew 100 plus years ago and realizing that if the body's struggling to control blood sugar and we reduce the amount of incoming sugar, whether it's from sugar or, or starchy carbohydrates, the body stops being at war with itself and um, one, blood sugar control starts to improve, but two, the body gets a lot healthier along the way. And people will notice things like um, losing belly fat, having more energy, blood pressure reduces, which we can talk about why that is 
if of interest. I want to make one point in that because the world changes slowly and because medical practice lags behind research and because of the importance of we are busy dealing with lots of things that we quite like guidelines to know we're not going off in the wrong direction. There's a brilliant paper that was published in 2019 by the American Diabetes Association called, I think it's Nutrition Therapy for Pre-Diabetes and Diabetes, uh, a consensus statement. And in there, they state that reducing uh, ultra-processed food, junk food, is a good idea. Reducing sugar is a good idea. Uh, eating vegetables is probably a good idea. Eating some protein foods is probably a good idea. And then the most evidence for improving pre-diabetes and diabetes is a reduction in carbohydrate. So this is now, and has been for at least the past few years, the best uh, evidence-based um, recommendations. That's really exciting, Campbell. And it takes quite a while for the ship to turn around and for everybody to come around to a new way of thinking. So 2019, that's three years ago. That's not actually very long for all, all, all of society and doctors and others to change their minds. Um, uh, the title of, of, of this podcast is Reversing Pre-Diabetes, and so we'll just talk a little bit more about that in, the, in a moment. But I suppose, do you want to make a point about if you have got type 2 diabetes and you think this, what what, what you're suggesting today is, is so helpful? Um, are there any caveats? Because some of the medication that you're on... Um, it's probably not wise to drop your to change what your your food patterns rapidly. That's right. So uh, back in 2018, um, I was a lead author on a paper in the British Journal of General Practice called "Adapting Diabetes Medication for the Low Carbohydrate Management of Type Two Diabetes," or "Adapting Medication for the Low Carbohydrate uh, Management of Type Two Diabetes: A Practical Guide," written for GPs, but it's open access, so anyone can access it. There are some medications that if you reduce your carbohydrate intake and you do not reduce your medications, your blood sugar goes too low. And potentially, in theory, that could be fatal. So anyone who's on medication for type 2 diabetes that improves their blood sugar, they must discuss uh, any life, significant lifestyle changes and certainly anything which involves a reduction in carbohydrate with their trusted healthcare professional uh, before they do that. What needs to be done with medication is actually very simple, which is why we wrote the paper. Um, but that is important. So, um, yeah, it's uh, work. People should be working together with the healthcare professional, not not um, doing anything on their own in that space. You mentioned how um, if you're in this state where you've got too much insulin and and you're you're not able to access blood sugar, you you feel less sharp. Uh, and there's interesting work as well. I'm, as, as you know, I've got an interest in, in dementia, which some people would claim is type 3 diabetes because of some of the similarities. And there's some evidence that reducing sugar and carbohydrates also helps mental sharpness. It improves mental function in early dementia and has other, other benefits. Do you, want, do you want to go slightly off topic and just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So I think really looking at this concept of, of how does a body fuel how do cells of the body get their fuel and how do they burn that fuel? Um, when this goes wrong, we get this thing called insulin resistance, i.e. the cells don't want to open their door and inside the cell is just this mess that if you kind of imagine a healthy cell has got a nice furnace burning and um, there's lots of energy being produced that the cell can use versus when it's overstuffed, the cell is kind of just a smouldering heap of, of, of 
smoke and there's no real energy being utilised. Um, that causes obviously all sorts of problems through the body. Now, dementia is a is a complex topic, many facets to it. But as you say, some people are, are calling it type three diabetes, and certainly the the numbers of people with dementia is just going off the scale, which I think wrongly is being put down to we have an aging population. I, I don't think that is the right way to look at it because it shouldn't be our default state that we develop dementia as we age. But I think a lifetime of of the body being in a state of challenge with blood sugar and insulin resistance seems to increase the risk of, of dementia. And I don't think that's debated. As far as uh, fuel, so kind of moving on to the, the second part of your, of your point in your question, is actually we do the body does need some glucose for fuel. But what's really interesting is there is another fuel the body can make called ketones. And uh, babies spend much of their life using ketones for fuel. And interestingly, breast milk has something in it that helps a baby make ketones. So ketones are an alternative to sugar in the blood for fuel. Now, what seems to be interesting in dementia is if you encourage your body to make more ketones, the cells in the brain, the nerves in the brain, seem to be able to better burn ketones than they can glucose. So... Um, that seem if they can better burn the ketones, they get they function better and therefore cognitive abilities could improve. So there's this kind of double piece. One, let's stop the problem that might cause dementia in the first place. Let's stop overwhelming the body with glucose and causing high insulin levels. And let's try and stop the problem developing and progressing. Even if it has developed a bit, there is some evidence coming through that if we switch the diet to help the body make more ketones, we can get a furnace roaring again in some of these cells that were previously struggling with just using glucose. And even those of us who haven't got prediabetes or dementia um, will often feel mentally sharper. I certainly did when I cut out sugar and, and short-chain carbohydrates. Is, is that a general thing or is it, was that just, just me? Yeah, I think it's a really good point. And I think I'd, I'd be keen not to um, say everyone will perceive benefit. I think, but I think there may be two parts. One is something we haven't mentioned yet, but affects a huge part of the population is something called reactive hypoglycemia. And this, I think, is messing with people's ability to feel sharp, think clearly um, every day of their life. And reactive hypoglycemia is the blood sugar has gone up. Lots of insulin has been released to try and get that sugar out of the blood. The insulin then hangs around for longer than it needs to and keeps driving the blood sugar down. So about two hours after your breakfast of cornflakes and orange juice, you actually get a blood sugar low. And that blood sugar low can really make it difficult to concentrate. Mental alertness drops. You'll feel very hungry. Some people even get quite sweaty and shaky. And then you go on the hunt for some biscuits. And then you feel a bit better as the blood sugar comes back up again. What's important with that is to realise it's the high blood sugar that caused the, that was your origin of that problem, not the low blood sugar. Now, when you think about, well, if you don't eat foods that cause that high then low blood sugar, that's going to help you to be mentally alert all day. Uh, including kind of mid-afternoon when many people will be slumping. You're not on that roller coaster of blood sugar, and therefore you've just got this even uh, levels of energy all day. And then there's this other part, if you're on a very low-carbohydrate diet where your body makes more ketones, for some people it seems to have this uh, miraculous ability to help with mental clarity. Um, and um, it will just do that to some people, and the science can probably be debated for a long time why that is. Um, but it just does seem to make a real big difference to some people, um, which is wonderful. That's absolutely fascinating. And um, 
of course, we have mammalian bodies. And if we think about many other mammals, they don't have free access to carbohydrate all the time. It's just for a month or two in high summer when day lengths are long and carbohydrate is a plenty and, and maybe insulin levels, cortisol levels are high, insulin levels rise. Uh, and we, we eat lots and lots of fruit ready for the winter, at least a brown bear would or, or other animals that hibernate. And that may be where we developed our desire and need for carbohydrate uh, to put up stores of of fats when it was easy to find because for 10 months of the year we might actually find ourselves in hungry let's say not starving but but hungry so there's there may be some biological adaptation because electric light means that we think it's summer all the time and a lot of people are a bit sleep depleted or they spend uh, they, they have very long days and 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 hours and, and carbohydrate is easy so we crave it but campbell is there one source that you've put together or anybody else has put together that people can access easily for some good useful information on that and and if there is what are the key points from it yeah so um one of my real keenness is that reliable and, and, and useful health information should be available to everyone. And I think one of my experiences as a GP, we have very short appointments, but education and, and people are being empowered by knowledge is so important. So as a response to that, um, create, we're creating um, free health guides um, to what would I want to give a patient? What would I want a patient to know that I never have time to talk about? So the one we have recently released is the pre-diabetes guide, www.prediabetes.guide. And really the focus is that important information about pre-diabetes and how to improve it. Uh, everyone learns differently. Some people is just like, tell me what to do. So there's some pieces in there around that. Other people want to make sure that they can trust this information and get a handle of it. So in that, we run through what pre-diabetes is, why it happens, um, what are the lifestyle factors that can lead to it, and then move on to how do you improve stroke reverse pre-diabetes um, covering the topics of nutrition, movement, mindset, and sleep. And then because the nutrition is such an important component, there's a section on, on uh, the overall uh, nutritional changes to make, which is reduction in what we call ultra-processed foods, so these packaged foods, even if they're labelled as healthier, usually if they've been through a factory production line, I would stop and question them. Uh, reduction in sugar and a reduction in overall carbohydrate uh, intake. Uh, what should we be doing? Well, eat food that the body was designed for over hundreds of thousands of years. Um, so food our ancestors would have recognised as food. And as a rough rule of thumb, food that doesn't come with an ingredients list because broccoli, cabbage, chicken or fish doesn't have any ingredients. Uh, eat enough protein. So I think many people, if you don't eat enough protein, you'll always be hungry. And um, and then just adapt that for, for what works for you. Uh, and in the resource, we've given some uh, food lists, uh, one for if you want to kind of pick a high protein approach, one if you want to pick a very low carbohydrate approach, which would lead to you being in what we call nutritional ketosis and getting the ketones. And there's low carbohydrate or moderate carbohydrate. And everyone everyone is different and, and, and need to find what, what works for them. 
That's fascinating. So uh, in our practice as, as health professionals, information is key. Reliable information is key. Empowering people to help themselves is key because most people actually want to help themselves. Uh, the great majority want to be well and want to be better. And you've put together some great um, resources to help us on that. So thank you very much indeed. Peter. Absolutely. And uh, we'll put that information on the uh, the showrunner guide, but some some fantastic information there, and I I particularly like, as you say, that you're you're doing good. You're helping people to help themselves. You're giving power back to that person, and you're helping them to improve their health through lifestyle rather than medication, which is always fantastic and, and something I'm a huge supporter of. So thank you very much indeed, Campbell. Uh, thank you, and I think just as your highlight, one of the things that got me really interested in this is these diseases that shouldn't exist, the ones that weren't around 100 years ago, which we can list off as high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, pre-diabetes, people struggling with their weight, fatty liver, chronic kidney disease. Uh, many mental health problems, I think, are contributed to by this and sort of really all branches of the same tree. Polycystic ovary syndrome, which you haven't mentioned yet, but hugely linked into this, um, and, and dementia that we've mentioned. These are all kind of branches of the same tree. And, and I think what my awareness as I started doing more and more and more GP work, which we're, we're trying to drug each of these problems and seeing them as separate entities and just expecting people to get high blood pressure. And you steadily realise it doesn't actually work. This 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 isn't a broken arm problem we're fixing where you need a cast, the doctor to give you a cast and the job's done. This is the, the foundations of the house are unstable. No matter how many times you paint the window or paint the window frames or doors or replace the tiles if those foundations remain falling apart um this, we're not helping so i got really interested in let's fix the root causes helps the conditions plus people just feel so much better they get a slimmer waist if that's what they want they've got more energy they've got more hope for the future we reduce the number of drugs they need and um it's an everyone wins scenario so it seems an important area to focus on Absolutely. I, I'm, like you, interested in chronic disease and the links between them all. And it, it seems as though they all that have that same root cause. And if we make good lifestyle choices, we don't just add uh, years to our life. We add life to our years, don't we? Yeah. And I think I really like to highlight the immediate, immediate short term benefits. So people, we, we generally do what we want to do for the for the short term, even if there's some long term gain as well. And I think there are so many people struggling through the day. I say with my patients, looking at your blood test, looking at what you come in with, it looks like your body's at war with itself. And everyone says it is. And I think they've just accepted that's where they are. The reason the body's at war with itself is because it is. And if we stop it being at war with itself, they feel better. And honestly, within days, people, people start to feel better, more energy, uh, feel calmer. I think you often see people's anxiety levels dropping, feel back in control of their life. Um, Everybody who's got any excess belly fat to lose will start to see the, the belly fat melting away. Um, so there's this really, really useful short-term gains that people can experience as well. Thank you very much, Campbell, for talking to us and sharing about reversing pre-diabetes. And that's really, really, really interesting. You've given us a, a great uh, understanding of the whole issue of, of diabetes in general and pre-diabetes uh, and, and some guides forwards. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast, hosted by Dr. Andrew Tresider and Dr. Peter Bagshaw. 
show was created by David Seeley and was produced by Rob Hunt's Music on behalf of the Somerset Clinical Commissioning Group.